0: Tonight, we're going to look at uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 20. That's going to be our text tonight. Now, the only good thing I can tell you is that we're going to move along in Joel a lot quicker than we did in Hosea, but that's only because Joel is three chapters long. <laughs> Hosea was not. <laughs> took a little bit longer to get through that book, but uh, we're still going to do our, our best to, to study it as in-depth as possible, but uh, you know, it's, it, it is an interesting uh, uh, book study because uh, as we started it out uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Joel doesn't give us a lot of information either about himself or even about the time that he's writing, so we have to kind of deduce certain things about uh, when these uh, particular events happened but we know one thing for sure is that as he's pointing to the future he's pointing to things that will be happening both immediate uh, imminently and uh, ultimately and uh, the ultimate will we're going to see is starting to open up a little bit more uh, as uh, this chapter uh, continues chapter two now we started in the first 11 verses last time and I'm gonna kind of review all of that here in just a moment, so. Um, the prophet has already commanded a trumpet to be blown in Zion. Zion tells us that uh, there, this is the southern kingdom of Judah. This is in the area of, of Jerusalem because of the mentions that uh, have to do with the, the mentions of the temple uh, and, and priests, and therefore we're, we're dealing with what's happening around Jerusalem. Well, Zion itself is already the clue that we're in, in the southern part of, of, of Israel. And, um, and Joel then is, is, of course, a prophet to uh, uh, Judah. And uh, the trumpet has been blown to awaken and to warn and to prepare, to prepare the people for what is yet to come. What is coming is going to be worse than the locust invasion that the people had already experienced at some time before all of this. So um, what he's telling the people is, look, as you have never seen anything like that locust uh, uh, plague, Uh, what's coming is going to be worse than that. Because it's not going to just affect your crops and it's not going to just affect your livestock. It's going to come and affect you. And so the call for repentance went out in chapter 1 as well as a gathering of the people. But now the seriousness of it is seen in the blowing of the trumpet, which is the blowing of the shofar. And so by by the time we get to verse 12, and again, I'll explain a little bit of what's in verses 1 through 11, just for review in just a moment. But in verse 12, he says, therefore also now saith the Lord. So we know that the message is coming from the Lord through the prophet to the people. And therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. The Lord is saying to the people, turn to me, come back to me, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. In other words, humble yourself fast so that you can pay attention to what I'm going to be telling you. Weep because the nation as a whole has sinned against God. Mourn over the fact that your sins have brought these things about or are bringing those things about. And then he says, And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and, and of great kindness, and, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return, or oh, this is a question, who, who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord? And now comes the second uh, command, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. This is repetition, but remember that repetition uh, brings double significance to to the necessity. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts Little children, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare the people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? So we know from our study of chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 that a greater judgment than that of the locusts is being foretold by the prophet Joel. There was an exhortation to repentance, assuring, assuring the Jewish people of the Lord God's pity if and when they repented. God would show them pity if they repented. Now I drive that home because People need to understand that God doesn't play games with us. So we should not play games with him. And unfortunately, even in the Church of Jesus Christ today, a lot of games are being played. One of the ones that we've been kind of focusing about over the last month and a half, well, actually about, well, yeah, a month and a half, counting the very end of the last year, and all of January and into this this month, is that we've been focusing our attention upon the fact that so many people have decided that prophecy prophecy is not important, that the study of what is to come is not important. Yet Jesus considered it important, enough to prepare even us of the times in which we're living in today. And we're seeing all the signs of the times coming forth in a a number of, of ways. So the understanding has to be that, uh, that, that every person has to come. And when I say every person, I mean every person. We as believers in Jesus Christ, you know, we don't, we don't want to take, take it for granted. You know, I mean, we, we need to stay focused and we need to stay vigilant as believers. But every person, Jew and Gentile, need to understand God is coming. Christ is coming to judge. God has given 6,000 years for people to get their lives in line and to look to him and to trust in him that if they give him their heart, man, that's hard to say. If they give him their heart, he will save them. He will rescue them. He will protect them. He will provide for them. This is what he's done for us. And he said, if you go through trials, I'll be with you. If you go through floods, I'll be with you. No matter what you go through, I'll be with you. And he has kept his promise, amen? To those of you who are believers, he's kept his promise. But there's a whole world out there that don't believe. And especially those who are supposed to be God's people. And those who claim to be God's people. So the shofar blast was still a sounding of an alarm of coming war that was both near at hand, which would have been a partial fulfillment at the time of the Assyrians or even the Babylonians, and a time yet to come, which would be the complete fulfillment then in the end time of these particular prophecies. These prophecies would not be completely fulfilled in the time of the Assyrians that, that, you know, that, that took the northern kingdom of, of, of Israel into captivity, Or the Babylonians who took the southern kingdom of Israel into captivity. That was not the complete fulfillment. The fulfillment will be with what is yet to come at a time when the Antichrist or the beast will be revealed. And we'll talk about him in just a moment. But the invading army, more than likely the Assyrians, because the Assyrians, and we'll see in the scriptures in the book of Isaiah, the Assyrians also wanted to take the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah. So the invading army, more than likely the Assyrians, although not eliminating the devastation of the Babylonians much later, serves as a type of the last days conflict. The last days, in other words, it's a picture of what is yet to come. if, If there's going to be a war that's going to take Israel into captivity, there's going to be a greater war at the end, where Israel, again, is going to be at the center of all of the conflict. Consider Israel today as the center of most of the conflict in the Middle East. You know, it doesn't take rocket science to know that. It doesn't take a degree in brain surgery to know that. Israel is the key not only to Bible prophecy, it is a key to what is happening in the Middle East. It is the only democracy in the Middle East. It is the only nation in the Middle East where most of its neighbors want to destroy that nation. And they've been trying to destroy it since May 15, 1948. So I want you to consider something. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16, and we're going to begin reading at verse 12. Now, please understand that this is pointing to the middle of what is called the day of the Lord, which, by the way, is the very theme of this little three-chapter prophecy of Joel, the day of the Lord. And the sixth angel poured out his vial. Now, understand, there's three types of prophecies from chapter 6. Through 19 of the book of Revelation, there are three types of, pro, of uh, I'm sorry, three types of judgments. There's the uh, the the um, seal judgments. Jesus opens the seals uh, there in, in in chapter six uh, of Revelation, and uh, that is the beginning of the 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 uh, the judgments of the day of the Lord or the the Great Tribulation or the tribulation period actually. And then come after that, the trumpet judgments. And each judgment intensifies in, in, its, in, in, its, uh, in its nature of, of, of being judgments. So you've got the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and then the bowl or vial judgments. A vial would be some kind of a res- receptacle or a, 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 some kind of bowl or something that can pour out. Uh, judgment so it's the greater judgment at the end so here we are in chapter 16 it says the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river euphrates and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared now a lot of people think that the kings of the east are, are you know all the way out to china and north korea and all these other and and, and you know that's possible it's possible but the immediate problem the, the immediate Uh, enemy of that area of that region that actually had kings (laughs) were uh, countries like persia and iraq all east and all around what the euphrates and you know if you do certain modern studies of of the uh of what they're doing today in Afghanistan and Iraq and and in in that area where we have troops there still, uh, there's a lot of talk about the the kinds of uh, uh, dams and all that they want to place on the river Euphrates for the very sake of using that water for one reason or another. But in other words, bringing it to a point where it's gonna be dry at some point for something of this nature. That's an interesting thing. It says, The water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. Now, this, of course, is very symbolic language, but it also ties into something that is literal. So please bear with me. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. The dragon is Satan himself. The beast is is the Antichrist, and the false prophet is the false prophet. Uh, For they are the spirits of devils. That's speaking of the spirits that are mentioned as uh, unclean spirits like frogs. They are the spirits of demons, or devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So there's a battle that's coming. There is a war that is coming. And then it says, of that great day of God Almighty, what day do you think that is? That is certainly the day of the Lord. But notice in verse 15 that a voice speaks, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And it is considered that this is Messiah, that this is Jesus himself saying, Behold, I come as a thief. Which means, very simply, he comes when everybody is unprepared for him to come. A thief never announces whether he's going to come to, to rob you and steal from you. And he says, I'm going to come as a thief, unexpected, and quickly, and immediately. And blessed is he that watches. Well, who's supposed to be blessed to watch? Believers, whoever is going to be believing at that time, because the church will not be here at that time. It's, Behold, I come as a thief, lest he that the watch, keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo is Armageddon. Those of you that have been to Israel know that there's a place out there called Har Megiddo. It's a huge, open... Uh, valley uh, below uh, Mount Carmel where where Elijah fought the prophets of Baal and all but a um, huge place, Armageddon Armageddon that's considered one of the final battles really a war it's going to be a war when you consider how many people are going to be in that particular valley for this particular conflict. So the sound of the shofar was also to be heard in the Holy Mountain. Uh, going back now to Joel, which refers to the Temple Mount. The Holy Mountain would be the Temple Mount. Zion is, is Mount Zion. Uh, it's also considered the uh, Mount Moriah, where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice. It would also be the very place where it is considered that Jesus Uh, was uh, crucified outside of the city gates but nonetheless on what would be considered Mount Zion the temple hill reminding us that in the latter days there will be a temple in the very place that the Lord has desired it to be there will be a temple a big problem today, of course, is the Temple Mount is uh, controlled by uh, uh, the Palestinians and, and, and others. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tense place. Sometimes they let you go in. Uh, we've been there a few times, there, but most of the time we weren't able to go onto the Temple Mount. They've all got all kinds of restrictions and, and whatnot. So... And then there've been conflicts that have happened right below the Western Wall where the where the Jewish people go to, to pray. So, it's an interesting and it's a tinderbox, it's what it is. But it's go, there's going to be a temple somewhere in that vicinity. Last year I was talking about a temple when we were dealing with the book of Ezekiel and I talked about a temple uh, location that may not be right where we think it's going to be. There's a possibility that it may be just outside on the southern steps of, of the city, uh, what is called the City of David because there's reference to the City of David as being the place where uh, the temple was. So uh, just keep your eyes on what's going on in the Middle East, especially there in Jerusalem. But in Zechariah, if you'll turn to Zechariah chapter 8 now, Zechariah 8, verses one through three, because I want to emphasize the issue of Zion, or Zion, Zion is is the pronunciation for Zion, and uh, it says here in verse one of Zechariah chapter eight. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, "Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy." And for us to have a better understanding of the word jealous here, he's really you know being zealous, you know having a a real zeal for the for for the place that God wants to have his meeting place with his people so he says I was zealous or jealous for uh, for Zion with great jealousy and I was jealous for her with great fury now this is God speaking okay he's jealous for it this is what he wants this is where he wants to build his temple truly a tabernacle on the earth Because it won't be until Jesus comes and establishes his thousand-year reign at his second coming that there will finally be a place that God himself and Christ himself builds as the temple. And then he says, Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the the holy mountain." And so I I bring this up so that you'll realize the importance of Jerusalem and the importance of that mount and the place where the temple is to be. Again, we have to emphasize that because too many people, even in the church today, who don't give any credence to Israel being at the center of prophecy, and, and saying, you know, that, that that's, you know, or, or like the preterists, the people who believe that all the prophecy, prophecies of the Bible have already been fulfilled, which is just ludicrous. But, you know, they, they have this thing that, well, you know, Israel does not have any role. Well, you tell God that. Because he's the one that says, this is where I want my meeting place with you. And he's zealous for it. And jealous for it. Which means he doesn't want anybody else to have it but himself. For his people. What does that tell you? That means his people still matter. Especially in the last days. Because if there's no Israel, then there's no coming of Christ. And he's not just coming for the church, he's coming for his people to restore them. That's why all of these prophecies are so important. So this passage anticipates the fulfillment then of Messiah's millennial reign, the thousand year reign of Christ, in the very city he calls his own. And the beauty of this time is revealed in the next passage in verse 4 of Zechariah 8. Look at what it says. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet all men and all women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the cities of the, city, uh, the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls, playing in the streets thereof. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes? Saith the Lord of hosts, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. And I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. And that is what is happening today in Israel. The people are coming from the east, and they're coming from the west. In fact, they're coming from all over but it's a, it's a beautiful place when you walk the streets of Jerusalem and, and you're reminded of this particular passage when you see old Jews and young Jews and, and kids playing in the streets in, in the very city of Jerusalem. And you think, wow. The Lord is great. And he doesn't lie, does he? He doesn't exaggerate, he just tells it like it is. And that's the way it's gonna be. If you've seen it with your eyes, it'll even be greater when Christ is ruling from the throne. But before that all becomes a complete reality, there is the conflict at hand. One that brings the appearance of the Lord's army. Now we ended with this last week, but I wanna come back to it. it, is Joel 2 verse 11. This is the Lord's army. And keep in mind what we just read in Revelation chapter 16. It says, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. No matter what brings all of these nations together, because there are those, uh, uh, by the way, there is a, uh, uh, this, this conflict that's going to be, uh, you know, you have Satan, uh, you, you see it mentioned already, we read about it, the dragon and the beast and, and the false prophet and all of these ga- uh, many of these nations are gathering at war, in war against the antichrist I don't want to go into details on it right this minute but the fact of the matter is nonetheless all the armies when it comes right down to it are not really there against him they're going to be there against the Lord and his hosts. But I think we know who's going to win. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For he is strong, that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can, who can abide it? Who can abide the day of the Lord? See, that question is really important. Who who would be able to endure that great and dreadful day of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. There's only one answer. No one can. The idea behind the rhetorical question is to strongly suggest that no one would be able to endure that day. And we have to be thankful that the Lord and his army arrive. And hence, another reason to consider the removal of the church at the rapture before that great day. It's another good reason to believe in the rapture of the church before the, great, before the tribulation period of seven years. And another thing, if you turn to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, it says, But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And what we need to understand is the context of all of this. The context is that God is purifying his people Israel. He is their, uh, they are his target. They are his target audience for refining and for cleansing. This whole seven year period, I've gone over it time and time again Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. What it tells us there about getting Israel back in the land so that they can complete the seven years of judgment, of chastisement, punishment, as it were. To complete the 490 years, which is seven times that of what they left the land. Uh, you know, they didn't. They never gave the land its seventh, its seven-year rest. God had commanded them to give the land one year, the seventh year, a rest, not to do anything. They didn't do it. So for every time they didn't do it, he multiplied it seven times, brought it to 490 years that they would have to suffer through their chastisements, through their uh, captivity, and their slavery to the people that you know, God used to bring this about upon them. Babylon, Assyria, and then Rome, and then they were scattered. And those seven years and that's Daniel 9:27 that tell us there that there's seven years, a week of years, that they still need to be completed, to end the transgression, if you remember. And verse 24, to end the transgression, to make atonement for sin, so on and so forth. So the spiritual purging, then, that these statements represent belong to the nation that the Lord is preparing to dwell with him in truth and righteousness. That's Israel. Those are His people. And He has given them warning upon warning. We're going to to read a a passage from Deuteronomy in just a little while. I mean, that's the law. That goes all the way back to Moses. That they were being told, "If if you will obey me, I will bless you. But if you do not obey me and you disobey me and you rebel against me, then I am going to bring curses upon you. Deuteronomy is very clear there, especially in this one particular chapter we're going to. Deuteronomy... I believe 36, it's, it's, it's the blessings and the curses. What is God saying? I'm just giving you warning. If you obey me, I'll bless you. Simple as that, right? Never simple. Never simple. Why? Because of the flesh. Because of the world, the flesh, and the devil, just as John mentioned in 1 John chapter 2. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul tells us, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. So it brings us back to our text in verse 12. Hey, we're finally there. Verse 12. And therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Rend means to tear. Tear your heart, not your garments. See, they would, do, they would go on, you know, during the time of Jesus, you know, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, especially the Pharisees, you know, they always did things on the outward. And Jesus would say, you know, on the outward, you look, you know, you... you You got your robes on, you got your phylacteries, you know the little boxes with the scriptures inside of it, and you go out and you pray in the street so everybody can see you and hear you and everybody praises you for it. He says, "But I know what's inside of you. You're empty and you're filled with dead men's bones." So he says, "Rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful." slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. So the prophet Joel was now calling for the people to repent of their sins and turn back to the Lord and, to, and the appeal before us was urgent. This appeal that we see here in this text was an urgent appeal. There, there was no way to escape the coming judgment unless the people returned to the Lord with all sincerity. Half-hearted repentance with God will not do. I want to say that again. Half-hearted repentance with God will not do. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. This is a beautiful pa- passage But you need to understand the beauty of it in the midst of the harshness of it. In Jeremiah 29 verse 10 it says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. He's saying, listen, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. This is no ifs, ands, or buts here. After seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. What do we find when you read the Book of Jeremiah? I mean, they've got false prophets that are saying, "Oh, don't worry, we're not going to be in captivity very long. We're just going to go over there. Don't, don't buy, you know, land or houses, or if they give you a chance, you know, don't, don't, don't settle. We're going to get right back over here." Sounded to me like and I and I say this with all due respect of the time, but sounded to me like a lot of the senators and congressmen that were talking after nine eleven, saying, Oh yeah, we as a nation, you know, we're gonna come back and become stronger than ever, you know. Look at us look at us today. Eighteen years later. Amazing. A lot of false prophets saying, hey, you know, we're going to be prosperous. Really? God says after 70 years, be accomplished at Babylon. I will visit you and perform my good work toward you and causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Folks, this is a beautiful verse. We put it on bookmarks and we put it on cups of coffee and all kinds of other things, you know. And it is a beautiful statement, isn't it? God says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end, which literally means to give you a future and a hope. But he's speaking directly to his people, Judah. Because then notice this, then shall you call upon me, then, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And look at verse 13. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Did you notice? All your heart, not half-hearted, but with everything that is within you is how God wants us to seek, to seek him. You shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, which tells us if you don't search with all your heart, you're not going to find him. You might find a little peace for a moment but you haven't found him because he wants all of your heart, not just half of it. He says, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Well, that's gone up and down, up and down and up and down over over thousands of years but in its final fulfillment in the end, which is what we're coming towards, that will be fulfilled. So the Lord was pleading with his people to return, fasting and weeping over their horrible sins and mourning over their violation of God's holy nature, his word, his commandments. And this was an indication that it was not too late for the people to escape the coming judgment. See, it's never too late when God says, listen, if you repent, I'll rescue you. But this repentance will require a true and complete change of heart. They needed to be genuine when they fasted. Their tears of weeping and mourning had to be a genuine expression of sorrow over dishonoring the Lord and his holy word. And it wasn't just a matter of humbling their hearts. It was a matter of radically rending or tearing their hearts as a sign of sorrow over their sins. Now in verses 13 and 14, we're, we're given three strong reasons. I'm talking about uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, going back to our text. that In verses 13 and 14, we're given three strong reasons the people were encouraged to turn their lives around so radically until so drastically. First of all, because the Lord is gracious and merciful notice what it says and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repent of him of of the evil Well, we'll get to the other ones but here it's because the Lord is gracious and merciful which means he's compassionate slow to anger and abounding in mercies this is indeed returning to the character of God because this is the character of God Slow to anger. You can look up that, that phrase in, in, in a concordance uh, or, or in a, in a, in a, in a Bible uh, commentary, uh, or I should say a, a Bible uh, concordance, and, and you can find this phrase, slow to anger. And, and uh, I mean, that, that, that's the very, I mean, it's all over the place in the Old Testament. God is slow to anger. He's, he's patient with us. In Psalm 103, verses 6 to 14, it says, The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Again, look at it. And plenteous us in mercy. He will not always chide. Neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities because if he had we wouldn't be sitting here. We'd be post-toasties. For as the heaven is high above the earth so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west. So far has He removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. For He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. He remembers, He knows exactly what we're made of because He made us. He knows what we are. The second thing is because the Lord is relenting of evil and turns back His judgment. He's of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. He is relenting of evil. He turns back his judgment when he sees the response to his kindness. Consider Jeremiah 18, verses 5-8. through It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Saith the Lord, Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Which means I I will relent. You ever, you ever heard the phrase or the, or the word relentless when it when it applies to somebody that is relentlessly, you know, going after something relentless means he just there's no way of stopping a person from doing what he is intending to do. But here it says of the Lord when a person turns back to him he will relent. He'll stop on his tracks. And he'll forgive. Has he not done this for us time and again? Then the third thing is because the Lord could answer their prayers and respond to their repentance. By restoring their economy. That's the question in verse 14. Who knows if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him. Even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. He responds to their repentance by restoring their economy, by restoring their agriculture and their productivity as a nation. And that would allow the people the opportunity to renew their worship of the Lord, since there would be plenty of food and drink to present as offerings to the Lord. And again, it comes back down to what they would do if they rend their hearts instead of their garments. And so the shofar blast announced war and called for a fast. And their weapons against the invading army would be repentance and prayer. Think about that for just a moment. Their weapons would be repentance and prayer. You can read in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 about the person, uh, the king, uh, uh, King Jehoshaphat. Who, when surrounded by three nations went to the Lord in prayer, humbled himself in fear over these three nations that could come down and, and, and destroy them. And he sought the face of the Lord. And certainly in that repenting, in that, in, that, in that attitude of calling out to the Lord, there had to have been repentance, there had to have been this, this dying to self. And God says, get up and do this. Put the worship team in front and go forth and worship me. You won't need any weapons for this battle because the battle belongs to me. That's what God does. And what happened to those nations? They killed themselves. They they, they actually destroyed each other because God's people were worshiping him. Now, not only did Joel plead with the people to repent, but he also called on them to hold a public worship service, a public fast, and a prayer meeting. That's verses 15 through 17. Let's go back to Joel 2, 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Even the, even the little children who were still un, unweaned from, from their mothers, uh, breasts from, from feeding them. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. They, they, they could be in there for a week, but they, they, you know, if it was at that moment in time, they needed to come out and they needed to assemble. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord. The priests were called to do what they were always called to do, which was to intercede for the people before God. Give not thy heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them wherefore should they say among the people where is their god why should they say among the people where is their god the prophet urged everyone to attend this solemn assembly the leaders as well as small babies who were nursing uh, even in the bride and the bridegroom to leave their wedding chamber Take notice that the priests were strongly encouraged to take the lead in crying out to the Lord. They were were even told what to specifically pray for. That the Lord would spare the people from coming judgment. That he would keep them from being scorned and becoming a shameful byword. Something that was predicted of them centuries before when the children of Israel were presented with the blessings for obedience and the curses for their obedience. It's Deuteronomy 28 by the way. Deuteronomy 28. I said 36 because it's Verse 36 is where we're going to be, but it's Deuteronomy 28, verse 36, and verse 37. Notice what it says here. The Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou shalt set over thee unto a nation, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. Now remember, this is in the time of Moses. Really, a lot of years before the times that we're looking at right now in the time of Joel. Joel. And there shall thou serve other gods, wood and stone. And thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword. Interesting, isn't it? Among all nations, whither the Lord shall lead thee. You'll become a shame, a shameful people, because you have left. And may I use the term from the book of Revelation? you've left your first love. Because you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and great commandment, you've left. So repentance simply means that we turn away from sin and turn unto the Lord. We believe in him and seek to follow him by obeying his word. And so true faith and belief translates into obedience. True faith and belief translates into obedience and heartfelt obedience signifies belief. Heartfelt obedience signifies belief. Turn to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verses 6-9 through says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. Is this not that constant recurring theme? Turn to the Lord and he'll turn to you. It's even in the book of James in the New Testament. Let him return unto them to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Oh, that more people would read that today in the, in the 21st century. When everybody thinks their thoughts are just as good or better than the Lord's. No, this has not changed. What's in God's word has not changed because our God doesn't change. And if you read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus doesn't change either. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. If that is the case, then should we not bow Before the one who made us and created us and has provided for us and is for us now our God and our King. So are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Going back to Joel, take note that the priests were to weep between the porch and the altar, it tells us verse 17, the altar of burnt offering stood before the porch of the temple. And between them, there was an open space of about 15 or 20 cubits. And it was there that the priests prostrated themselves on such occasions. It was into this place that the priests brought the sacrifice or the victim of atonement. And where the high priest laid his hands on the head of the victim confessing his sins. The priests were to humble themselves on behalf of the people in in being intercessors. God has called us to do the same. To humble ourselves when we pray for others. Jesus today is our intercessor at the right hand of the Father. Be thankful that he's praying for us. Whether anybody else prays for us or not, at least Jesus is praying for us. That's a good thing. But we need to pray. We've been commanded to pray. Commanded to seek the face of God each and every day. David in Psalm 51 would recount something of of great significance and importance to us here tonight. Psalm 51 verse 14. Now remember, Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance before God for his great sin with Bathsheba. He said, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. And take note of this, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. If it was only a matter of me sacrificing a a lamb or a bull or a goat or something and that's all I would need he says thou desirest not sacrifice else I would give it thou delightest not in burnt offering the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart you know what that is a heart that is torn rended as Joel describes it rend your heart not your garments. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. I think that's pretty cool. Build a wall. God said uh, build a wall in Jerusalem. And you know what? They did. They did. Then shall thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness and with burnt offering and with whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Then the people would do this as a matter of worship, not just as a matter of trying to get something from God because it comes from a broken heart. Lastly, there's there's mercy and restoration promised to those who repent before the Lord. Let's go to Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Notice it says, Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Where have we seen that before? Where he's jealous for Jerusalem, jealous for Israel, jealous for the land that he said is my land, and pity his people. Show them compassion. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil and you shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen, but I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea. And his stink shall come up. And his ill savor shall come up because he has done great things. He just, you know, the northern army is just a stinky. All of Israel, what this is saying here, is that all of Israel, the Jews who truly believed in the Lord and followed him, would be given God's mercies or pity and be restored to the promised land. A day was coming when true believers would receive their inheritance, all that the Lord had promised them in his holy word. This, this was definitely a picture, you see, of a, or, or a foreshadowing, as it were, of the blessings that will flood the earth in the messianic kingdom. In the messianic kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ at his second coming. Now, you need to understand that. Jesus, the Messiah, will establish God's kingdom on earth and will rule as king of kings and lord of lords. Now he's already king of kings and lord of lords. But he will come and rule again on this earth. Come again and rule on this earth. That's the second coming. And By the way, when he comes, he comes with ten thousands of his saints and the hosts of heaven. That's going to be quite a picture And you can take the picture with your when you're coming. I don't think you'll have any of these. I mean, I I would almost have to think that. If that was available, people would be. We're We're a funny culture, are we? Just a funny people. Okay, so first, the Lord promises temporal prosperity, verse 19a. The first part of verse 19. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith. So he promises a temporal prosperity. Of course, everything on this earth is is temporal. But uh, he restores farms, and he restores vineyards of the nation, the land producing enough crops and wine and oil to satisfy every person. Uh, and, And by the way, that happened, and then they... Blew it again, and then they were scattered at the time of Jesus. After the, you know, after Jesus uh, 70 A.D., and went out. But now they're gathered again. And guess what? Guess what's been restored? As they're preparing now for the coming of Jesus, their Messiah, which they don't know is Jesus. They think it's just a, their Messiah, but it's Jesus, and they're going to see him because they'll see the scars when he comes. But what 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 did they have now? They have been blessed. They're one of the most prosperous nations in the world. In all of these areas of farms and vineyards and crops, wine, oil, and other kinds of oil, and other kinds of, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then second, the Lord would res- restore respect and honor to his people, verse 19b. Second part of 19, it says, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. Well, that hasn't been fulfilled yet because they're a reproach among the heathen today. Still. And never again, though, would they be humiliated, humiliated, scorned, or ridiculed among other peoples of the earth. That's at the time of the coming of Jesus Christ again. Because between now and then, there's going to be all kinds of conflict and problems. Since this promise has not yet been fulfilled, it has to refer primarily to the future when Messiah will be establishing God's kingdom on earth. The third thing is that the Lord will restore peace and national security, verse 20. Verse 20 but I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into the land of, barren and desolate with his face toward the east, his hinder part toward the utmost sea. That would be the Mediterranean. Uh, and his stink shall come up and his ill savour shall come up because he has done great things. That, that really speaks of the enemy uh, later on, of course. Uh, Satan, of Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. But when the northern army attacks the Jews, and by the way, what army is going to attack the Jews in the Gog-Magog War of Ezekiel 38? It's it's a northern army made up of a confederacy of Russia, Turkey, and Iran, which are already allies together, and it's just going to take something that happens to bring them into this kind of... of, um, desire than to attack but concerning the imminent attack the attack after the prophecy of Joel we're told in Isaiah that the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian troops and Sennacherib the leader of the Assyrians went home a defeated king you can see this in Isaiah 37 verses 36 through 38. So I want you to see it. Because this would would be a partial fulfillment then of verse 20. Isaiah 37 verses 36 through 38. Remember, he's trying to attack (coughs) Jerusalem. He's already taken the northern kingdom. Wants the southern kingdom and he wants Jerusalem. So the angel of the Lord went forth. Smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. Uh, that's King James uh, vernacular for one hundred eighty-five thousand Assyrian troops. That's a lot of troops to kill at one city. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sharetzer, his sons, smote him with a sword, killed him, and they escaped into the land of Armenia and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. Well, that's kind of a sad story for Sennacherib, but that's a partial fulfillment of what we saw in verse 20, of how the Lord would remove far from them the northern army. So in that particular case, a partial fulfillment was, was done there's still another fulfillment yet to go. The one where not just the northern army of the Gog-Magog war, but let's go all the way to Armageddon again. And we'll make some ties along the way between now and the last chapter of this book. But let me close with Psalm 126, the whole psalm. It's only six verses but we'll close with this. It says in Psalm 126, verse 1, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us. Whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing and bringing his sheaths with him. There's something to be said about any individual or any person or any group of people or any collective group of people that realize the necessity of humbling oneself before a great and awesome God, to honor him with obedience, to honor him with reverence and respect. And to know that oftentimes when we find ourselves in places of, of trial or tribulation or even persecution, but even if we get ourselves in a, in a pickle as we read about David earlier, there was that one aspect, the aspect of humbling oneself. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. When we humble ourselves, God hears. When we humble ourselves, God acts. When we humble ourselves, God heals. And he strengthens. And he sets us back on a right course. So let's humble ourselves ourselves because when we humble ourselves he will exalt us in due season amen